welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm living in the loudest city in the world, and I'm <laughs> Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmik Ulu. And today's text, Raven Song, is set in Myardville, BC, which is not really a town that exists anymore. It's sort of right. part of Coquitlam now. Um, okay. And it's in the traditional and unceded territories of the Coquitlam Nation. Um, the Coquitlam are a Stolo people, as is the writer of this text, Lee Maracle. Yeah. I- we're recording these out of order, so we've already done Nick and Nora, which is our mm-hmm. last text of the year. And folks, you can look forward to that next week. But I realized as we were doing the land acknowledgement and that, that it had actually become very kind of stale and rote and repetitive. And I'm so excited that we actually get to talk about an Indigenous text and sort of reconfirm our commitment to this project, because... I just feel like it's been too long since we've talked about indigeneity on the podcast, Brenna. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that particularly for me reading this text, so I lived in New Westminster for nine years, which is Kikite territory, which is sort of like one community over, really, if you're following kind of along the river. Mm -hmm. And so it was neat to be back in this particular cultural geography, but to see it from obviously an entirely different perspective, not just yeah. temporally, but to be sort of viewed from this community that's really treated like outsiders by the people mm-hmm. of Myardville. And yet they're able to see sort of the the foibles and the violence of the white community so clearly because they are treated as such outsiders. Yeah, this, um, this was an interesting pick. We ended up selecting it because Lee Maracle had recently passed, and mm-hmm. I realized I had never read a single one of her texts. I barely knew who she was as a significant cultural figure in Canada. Like when I started to hear stories about her, it was clear that I needed I needed to pay more attention. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know what to expect going into this because, I also realized that I've really only read Indigenous texts for this podcast, so I've got exposure to only a couple of artists. And Ravensong is different from the other texts that we have read. This is so much more elliptical. It has Mm -hmm. almost a stronger element of orality to me in the Mm -hmm. technical writing of the prose. And obviously, it's also historical. The other texts that we've read are more contemporary, so there was... A lot of difference going on in this one. Yeah, definitely. So just to bring folks up to speed, if they haven't read Raven's Song, um, it's set in the 1950s, and it's actually set during the flu pandemic of the 1950s. So mm-hmm. that was the, the, the version of pandemic that was known at the time as the Hong Kong flu. Right. And part of what the book looks at is the very different experience, not just of illness, and dying that is experienced by the indigenous community in the book, which is just referred to as the village. Mm -hmm. 
which is stark, don't get me wrong, the difference in sort of number of people who die and things, but also the way grief functions in the town versus the village and Mm -hmm. the role that people fill. One of the things that Stacy, the main character, keeps reflecting on is that it seems like when people in the town die, they die and people are sad, but everyone moves on. Whereas Mm -hmm. when someone in the village dies, that leaves a hole because that person had a responsibility to the community that then is not served anymore until someone yes. else takes it over. And so that that difference in relationality, that difference in how we see and respond to each other, I thought was really powerfully evoked in the book. But it mm-hmm. also, if, given that we are also living through a pandemic, there were certainly times that I found the book really hard to read. Uh, Tea Books and Chocolate wrote in about this exact point, and I, and I think... I'll let them speak to it because they said, you know, it feels eerily present and parallel. I think the most obvious comparison to the pandemic is the line, the flu means illness to them. For us, it means terror. It just destroyed me. As a healthcare worker and someone who has been following the disparities and who has been hit hardest by COVID-19, this just wrecked me. They go on to point out, I just think of all the countries and people who are being excluded from getting vaccines or medical supplies right now, both in the Mm -hmm. US, Canada and worldwide. Just everything about this discussion around the pandemic and medical care and disparity was so true in the time of the story. And it's still true now. And it makes me so angry. And that was one thing I really noticed as I read through the book is Mm -hmm. that I kept forgetting it was set in the 50s, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it feels very present. So Ravensong tells the story of Stacy. It's basically her coming of age story. Um, she lives in the village, but she's one of the few people who commutes by foot every day into the town. And it's funny because I know this geography and I was like, is the village where I think it is? Is the town where I think it is? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's like a four kilometer walk. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. For folks who might be listening from other parts of the world, that's a significant distance to cover in a regular foot traffic. Yes. Yeah. And so so she makes this trip every day because Stacy really likes school. And it's actually sort of a mantra in the community that Stacy likes school. And so people Mm -hmm. sacrifice things so that Stacy has the clothes and the supplies that she needs to go to school. Yes, don't ask Stacy to contribute to certain tasks because everyone is sacrificing so that she can go to school because there's an understanding that she will be giving that back in some way upon graduation. Yeah. Her plan is to go to UBC to learn to become a teacher and then to come back to the community and build a school in the community so that children don't have to either be sent to residential school or make the walk to this school in the town. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, in many ways, Stacy is like this hope for her community because yes. of that. But mm-hmm. she's also an outsider because she's kind of turned herself into one. She's not really engaged in the same processes and tasks as other people in the village. And there's some who look at her with suspicion because, you know, she has this affinity for whiteness to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. But it makes Stacy really well positioned to comment on what's going on in the town. Because although people in the village think that she loves school and wants to be like these white people, she's actually far more conflicted about all of it. She finds school interesting, but also socially, she's completely alienated. Mm -hmm. She wants to achieve something, but to do that, she's very aware of all the parts of herself she has to hide or fold away so that she doesn't 
offend the white community and get herself kicked out of the school. Mm-hmm. And so really Stacy exists in kind of this, to use a very English, <laughs> Englishy term, she exists in this liminal space between yeah. these communities. She doesn't really fit into one or the other. She wants to fit in at the village and she wants to be seen as part of that community, but she also has these goals and these dreams. And so I really liked Stacy's character. I found her so interesting and easy to empathize with. Yeah. I also really enjoyed her. And I think it's in part because she's obviously representing a different perspective from Mm. yours and mine but it's in a very accessible way because she has a foot in both worlds so i think there's even parts of her community that she doesn't always understand so part of the discovery for us is her discovering what things she can and can't say to her mom versus german judy who is one of the lesbian couples that lives in the village and also has like a kind of shaky reputation in terms of like well does she count does she matter because Mm -hmm. she's a white person living Mm -hmm. on the reserve i think stacy is actually the perfect point of view to engage in all of these discussions because she's so observant but also because we know from the raven who is you know like a bit of a mythological character who has an almost omniscient sight of what's to come stacy is ultimately the most important person because she will be the one to drive change Mm -hmm. yes exactly and i'm glad you brought up german judy and that whole thing because there's all these Mm -hmm. little sort of mini vignette stories going on in the background the flu is obviously the most important one it's also the longest one but there's also things like Stacy's slow realization that Rena and German Judy are a couple and that the ways that she's been interacting with Rena are not appropriate because Rena's a lesbian, right? But that's a mm-hmm. very slow realization for Stacy. There's also Stacy coming to understand how the community is going to deal with a situation of domestic violence. There's right. all these sort of almost mini moments and they're all little moments of Stacy's coming of age because mm-hmm. In each case, she's transitioning from being treated like a child by the village to being treated like an adult. And she's finally getting like this secret knowledge, which is what allows her to come to understand how the village functions and what her role in it is. Yeah. And and even when we say like, oh, there's mini vignettes about this character, it's not as though it's, oh, and then this chapter is dedicated to Rena and German Judy, or this vignette is dedicated to the old snake, who is the individual who uh, abuses his wife and is ultimately forced out of the community, like banished and exiled. It's not written like that. Like it's bolded and woven like a tapestry. So like, Stacy will just be having some kind of interaction with either her mom or uh, somebody else from the community. And then it'll be like, and here's this other thing. And that's what I meant by elliptical, like Mm -hmm. the way that everything is sort of woven and folded together. So often you lose track of what time period you're in or like what story are we telling? And you really have to just adapt to Miracle's writing style in that way. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I think elliptical is a really perfect way to describe it. It's also hmm, 
Like, I found that this short book took me longer to read than many oh my gosh. of the much longer yes. books we've read. Um, uh-huh. And part of it is you have to read attentively because the time period shifts, right? Mm-hmm. You shift from Stacy's memories of her childhood to a moment in the present. And it's not jarring, but you have to be paying attention to the transition, right? And what's happening mm-hmm. almost always is that memory of childhood is sort of being juxtaposed against what's happening now, which shows us sort of Stacy's changing position within the community. But yeah, if you're just trying to like breeze through it, <laughs> you're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff where they're playing with time and space too, right? You move around mm-hmm. locations too very quickly and you move between perspectives. I should say here, Tea Books and Chocolate mentioned in their note this question about sort of the amount of airtime each character gets. Right. So they give the example of Madeline who gets introduced as this important character like pretty near the end. Maybe 20 pages before the book ends, yeah. <laughs> but in many ways, Madeline is key to changing the way Stacy views herself and the journey she's about to embark on. So, right. yeah. Yeah, so Madeline is the woman who's been in the domestic abuse uh, situation and... She shoots the old snake. It's great. Yes. Shoot again, yeah. baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's fascinating because in some ways it's actually very difficult to keep track of all the characters because there's characters who are actually dead who mm-hmm. either reappear as guardians like almost spiritual advisors or stacy will hear their voices or their spirits kind of guiding or telling her what to do and at times it can be difficult to keep track of who's who who's alive during the final stages of the influenza stacy's father actually dies and Mm -hmm. the wisdom keeper of the village uh dominic also dies around the same time but then there's a, a vignette where we get to learn how Dominic came to be that person. You're like, wait, I thought he was dead. Is he back now? Is he a ghost yeah. now? And you realize, yeah. no, this is just taking place in the past. So if you're not attentively reading and you're trying to skim or get through it quickly, those kinds of transitions can be really challenging to follow. But also it's paramount to the way the story is being told that you are following along and I just keep making like wavy motions with my hands that nobody can see. (laughs) It's true though. It's true. Um, There's just a different approach to time and temporality in this Mm -hmm. text that is very, you know, you almost want to say like non-Western, but it's a very different storytelling tradition. It's about giving you the information you need not like front-loading it chronologically, but instead giving you the information that you need about these characters as you meet them. And yeah, it does, it does require a fair amount of attentiveness. Mm -hmm. Something else Tea Books and Chocolate asked was, is this YA or is this literary fiction or can it be both or is it something else? (laughs) Which I (laughs) think is a really good question. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's definitely literary fiction. I think of literary fiction as books that reward your attentiveness books that offer you more the more you're willing to pay attention to them right like if you read a book like you read nick and nora it's just a really fun story reading it over and over and over again isn't going to like solicit more right insights or observations right so i think of literary fiction as richer than maybe standard fiction 
Well, or even it's it's indebted to things like metaphor and illusion. Yeah. And yeah, like there's the surface level read and then there's the stuff that's going on underneath. And you can get things from both of those, which is where the power of Nick and Nora lies, right? Is that it's a great, yes. fun, fast read. And it doesn't matter as much if there isn't as much of that going on beneath the surface. But then when you contrast it with Ravensong, it's just a very different kind of work. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be like a positive or a negative thing. It's right. You go to these texts for different reasons, right? Yes, yes. And so I really do think that a text can be literary fiction and YA at the same time, because I think YA is about audience and literary fiction is about style. Mm -hmm. And I do think this is YA. There was a good question that came through on the Twitters, Joe, and I don't remember who asked it, but saying like, why is this not not YA in the same way as like Virgin Suicides or mm -hmm. um, Walk to Remember? Because we do have this epilogue at the end of the book, right? So we do have this like follow up from adult Stacy telling us what happened after. And it's all bad, incidentally. <laughs> it's very sad epilogue. <laughs> The reason I don't think that that takes away from the YA-ness of this text is because the text itself is still very much focalized through Stacy in the moment of discovery of yes. each of these moments. It's yeah. not Stacy saying, and then as I look back, I realize that that moment was important. We're mm -hmm. living it alongside young yes. coming-of-age Stacy, and to me, it's that immediacy that makes something YA. I would stand to be argued with, but not a lot. <laughs> yeah, I I very much agree with you, given the past discussions that we've had around texts that particularly use a flashback as almost a wraparound or a framing device. And that does feel like the case here, but it's only at the end. So we don't actually know that this is a story being told so much in the past for most mm -hmm. of the book. I will say to me, that also makes the epilogue very unsettling. It honestly felt like it had been written after the fact. And we should acknowledge that this book was written in three days yes. as part of a kind of like fiction writing contest that Markle had engaged in. And of course, if you unpack the troubling history of the book, it was rejected for publication. It was deemed uh, not commercial enough. It was picked up by Rainbow Coast, which is the same publisher in Canada who publishes Harry Potter and then released at the same time and then buried, went out of print, and then mm -hmm. picked back up by a smaller women-focused publishing house and has since gone on to be like completely celebrated and rediscovered. So honestly, a very troubling history in terms of publication of this story. Mm -hmm. But when I got to that epilogue, sorry to bring it back around, it almost felt like the epilogue was added later. Like mm -hmm. there's something more to be said about this because the book before the epilogue ends on this uplifting note of hope mm -hmm. as we send her off to university with the knowledge that she will come back. And the epilogue is very much bringing that back to earth and saying the reality is that there was another epidemic that was just as destructive. And when we touch base with everybody, everyone seems not unhappy, but just this wasn't the changing point that we thought it was going to be. Well, no, and it's interesting too. I think that epilogue is jarring. I think it's supposed to be. We get this 
suddenly this grown-up Stacy's perspective and all of the hope and optimism and like I'm gonna change the world spirit mm-hmm. of the end of the novel part of the novel you're right it's absolutely gone and like mm-hmm. the government wouldn't let her open up a school on the reserve so right and she couldn't get a job in white schools so she has this education and she's got nowhere, no outlet for it. And yep, there's another epidemic that comes through town and eventually all the young people move away, particularly the young women. And it's it's very much like you don't get to leave this book thinking that there was some kind of 1950s high point for this community because mm-hmm. colonization kept on rolling through. Yeah, which is weird because it's a fictional text. Like, these are not real people. This is not biographical. And yet, particularly this epilogue feels very much grounded in historical reality. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's an interesting choice, right? And I wonder, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> but I have so many questions about why Markle wanted to underscore it this way. It's almost like, I almost think that the epilogue is for the settler reader, who gets to the end of Stacy's story and is feeling uplifted. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. we are, that's taken away from us because we haven't earned that feeling of uplift. And and Markle refuses to make the end of the text easy for the settler reader. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I think it's doing. I agree. And that actually opens up another avenue of conversation that I wanted to have with you, Brenna. And I'm going to preface this by saying... I'm probably going to say this incorrectly, and my intention is not to offend, but one of the things that I really liked about the book is that, well, it's obviously very, very pro-Indigenous people, and the perspectives are often from them looking out at us, and us being white settlers, and I'm including myself in this. I appreciate it that these are fallible people. And they don't always do everything correctly. Like this isn't a white people are bad, indigenous people are always right or great even. Like there's an acknowledgement that sometimes things go wrong or that people don't always do it the way that they should. And particularly around the health crisis, because there's a moment where it seems as though all hope is lost in terms of like combating the disease and they're starting to lose people like really important significant figures in the community are dying and they say well normally when people are near death and we can't do anything more for them we drop them off at the hospital the white people Mm -hmm. hospital and you know there's a, a very quick line about how they get chastised by the white doctors and nurses who say, well, why didn't you bring them in earlier? We could have done something. And it's because in the community's perspective, in the village's perspective, why would we? Because when people go to the hospital, they die. They never come back. Mm-hmm. But then they discover IVs and saline solution, and it manages to save a couple of people. And they get very angry for feeling like this information has been withheld from them. But I took it to be that there's also a bit of an implicit criticism from Maracle saying, but we have also self-isolated and we don't trust these people. So even when there are options that we could benefit from, we don't always capitalize on it until too late because there has been such a divide between the two communities. I think it's sort of the tragedy central to the whole way the text functions, right? Is that 
there is such well-earned distrust, right, between right. their relationship to the hospital, the residential schools, mm-hmm. just the way they're treated when they even, you know, they do take money to the store to try to buy something and the way they're treated. Mm-hmm. There's an incident where someone's house burns down and the yeah. firemen don't even arrive in time. And then, you know, they're kind of like, well, how come no one's helping us? Or how come no one's directing us? Where's the person in charge? And the indigenous community just says, like, get out of here. Like, why are you here to help us now? And what are they most concerned about when the firemen arrive, right? They want to, they want to lay blame to someone, mm-hmm. right? They want to know whose fault it is. And they want to know if they should call a police and like arrest someone. And right. it's like, well, I can't imagine why this community of people doesn't trust you guys. <laughs> like, yeah, shocker, shocker. <laughs> shocker. So I'm not sure if it's as much sort of um, a critique of the community itself as a really effective way of showing how the systems sort of fail on multiple levels here, right? right. Which okay. is that there's this help that is available. There are these things that do work, but it's sort of Stacy's role, right, to be the intercessor, to see what is useful or mm-hmm. usable in the town and bring it to the village and share that knowledge and understanding. It's sort of similar when she and German Judy are the ones who go and get the aspirin. It's like, right, it has to come through Stacy because she becomes like the translator from town right. to village, which is, you know, such a difficult position for her to be in because it means she doesn't really feel settled Mm -hmm. anywhere well it's fascinating because so i mentioned dominic is the kind of elder who's for lack of a better term he's kind of the the keeper of knowledge um so he ends up making a lot of like the important decisions about memory and that kind of stuff like people go to him for advice before he dies and after he dies there's an insinuation that stacy might have been the next person and it actually really reminded Mm -hmm. me of the giver in terms Mm -hmm. of like the burden of certain positions of responsibility and how that removes you from your community because you have to take up that mantle yeah totally and what that mantle means is ultimately a kind of isolation it's an isolation in Mm -hmm. service but it's still an isolation yeah which is also fascinating because I know that Tea Books and Chocolate also reference the fact that the book gets missold in the blurb <laughs> if you look it up because it makes it sound like it's a sister story because we haven't talked about her at all. But Stacy has a younger sister named Cecilia. And it's fascinating how Cecilia factors in at key moments of the story, but also kind of doesn't matter at all. Yeah, I'm curious about this. I know that Maracle has another book called Celia's Song, and I don't know if that is the same Celia. So I meant to go looking, but I raise it because I want to read Celia's song. Like Mm, I want to know her story. She's such a perfect little sister character in that she is always watching and listening, right? And that's her role. And nobody knows she's around. So one of the things that comes up in the text is this issue of parentage and like who actually fathered these kids and Oh, that was so interesting. Yeah, and and how Stacy responds to realizing that her uncle is her father and mm-hmm. how it was after the death of one of the children that suddenly there are no more children and that's why Celia is the youngest and there's so there's all of this sort of family dynamic to untangle that we only really get snippets of. We never get mm-hmm. the whole thing. And again, you have to be very careful about how you read it because it's not all one part, right? Like you kind of get a dump of it where you say like, oh, okay, well, this new person, Ned, is actually your father and old Jim. He was always 
your mother's husband but they were unable to have children so she went to ned and it was perfectly fine it was accepted but also it doesn't get talked about within the community yeah yeah and it leaves stacy with all these questions because of course she's been going to this school in the town and she's been learning this particular morality there mm-hmm. and this is something that would sort of never be acceptable in the town but at the same time in the town you know children die by suicide because of the norms and expectations of the town, right? And so right. one of the things I think is important, oh, I'm getting off to the topic of Celia, but there's a parallel <laughs> between the suicide of Polly and young Jim in the epilogue. Right. There's this sense to me that those moral failings, the moral illnesses of the town are coming to the village and mm-hmm. we see that through the parallel child violence basically that happens. But yeah, I think Celia is a really interesting character because Stacy is this intercessor and Celia is watching her and over and over again we see how Celia feels kind of pushed to the margins because Stacy is trying to soak up these last few months with her mother and and establish mm-hmm. their relationship. But as a result, we only ever see Celia on the margins. And I think she's probably a pretty interesting character and I want to know more. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's one of the book's best assets is that it really leaves you wanting more of all of these people because in the way it's written, even if you're only getting a glimpse into somebody's life because we have to stay focused on Stacey, so much of this book is the richness of just, you know, a little conversation that we have with Ella a kind of other elder who is also a little bit persnickety and sort of one step removed from the inner circle of the people who get to make decisions. But she and Stacy have a very funny relationship and Ella recognizes what Stacy will bring to the community. So she actually discourages a white boy who's trying to court her. Ella is like, you need to stop coming here, but you can keep coming to visit me. And There's all this richness in these characters Mm -hmm. and these conversations and the stories. And even though the book takes place over a sort of condensed period of, I gathered like about six months to a year, Stacy's final year before she goes off to UBC, there's so much packed into this, but it also feels like we're just getting little glimpses of it. Mm. Yeah, I agree totally. And it's kind of nice if not wholly satisfying to leave a book world wishing you knew more about everyone Mm -hmm. you know yeah if nothing else i came away from this really appreciative of the world building and the richness Mm -hmm. of the characters and also i will confess like it took me the better part of the first probably 60 to 80 pages of this book to get into the rhythm and the flow. Mm -hmm. I really struggled to the point where I thought I'm going to have to sit down for like a dedicated period of time each day just to make sure I finish this on time because I thought Mm -hmm. I was going to be able to breeze through it because it's like 180 pages. And instead it was it was work and I started to resent it. And then I got (laughs) into it and suddenly was very invested Yeah, I agree. I agree. And even, you know, I read a fair amount of literary fiction still. I think this is a particularly dense book Mm -hmm. with a lot of richness. And it, you know, it's, I always kind of think it's fun to read a book that rewards you for spending time with it. But 
it's hard to know when you start a book whether it's going to be one that you're going to need to spend a lot of time with. So I really, I was grateful for the opportunity. And I should say, Joe programmed this book. This sounds like a total Brenna programming, but this was 100% Joe. Um, So I'm grateful that you assigned it, Joe. I really think it was a good read. Before we leave, I want to expand out to the macro level a bit. We had a Mm -hmm. a nice email from Victoria who did not finish the book in time, but wanted to talk a little about Lee Maracle's sort of role. Yes, absolutely. one of the questions that Victoria raises is, you know, they say like, this was right around the time of Stephen Sondheim and Anne Rice dying last week, or I guess the week before for when this is coming out. And it's really a terribly sad time for a lot of people, right? Two huge yeah. icons. And so Victoria was sort of asking about Lee Maracle in parallel to that. And I certainly think that if you follow many Indigenous writers, and particularly Indigenous writers in the territory now known as Canada, you mm-hmm. will have seen on Twitter just an absolute outpouring of not just grief over her passing, but a real sense of the kinds of ways in which she mentored just a whole community of writers to Mm -hmm. come of age. Lee Markle was very much at the sort of thin end of the wedge of Indigenous publishing in Canada. I would put Lee Markle and Thompson Highway and Thomas King as sort of the three who were publishing at the beginning of the 90s and making a name for themselves. And of course, you know, there's gendered layers in here as to why mm-hmm. Lee Maracle is maybe not as famous as those other two. But yeah, I think her significance has been huge. And I think that the most important thing she did for Indigenous literature in Canada to sort of answer the question of Victoria's email is to A, mentor that huge community and mm-hmm. B, to insist on space yeah. for that storytelling to be taken seriously. Yeah, the anecdote that you raised last week when we were sort of prefacing this book about her unwillingness to step aside, if she Mm -hmm. wasn't invited, she showed up anyway. If she wasn't offered a space on a panel, she took it up in the crowd. Mm. It's not even activism, right? It's just, it's the demand to be heard Mm -hmm. and taken seriously and said, I don't care if you don't think I should have a voice. I have one and I have to use it. Mm -hmm. And I think that she made space for so many writers and particularly Indigenous women writers to come after her. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so wonderful about all the reminiscences that you read about her online is that just a a real sense of how that mentorship was sort of wholehearted and enthusiastic and encouraging. Mm -hmm. It has taken a really, really long time for publishing in Canada to recognize the value of Indigenous stories. And we still see a lot of privileging of very traumatic stories as something Mm -hmm. settler audiences seem most interested in reading. One of the things I really liked about this book is there are certainly moments of heartbreak and certainly sad moments. Mm -hmm. And the epilogue is upsetting. But the characters themselves are not exploited for their tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it was really wonderful to read these characters being so whole and themselves even in really difficult contexts. I thought that was really beautiful. And a real challenge, I think, to mainstream settler publishing to think about what it is that they value in the stories from Indigenous writers. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's not just whose voices do we want to amplify. It's not just, oh, what's sexy in publishing right now? Mm -hmm. Or, oh, where's the money coming from? Because unfortunately, I do think that there's this push in this current moment to say, oh, well, we have disrespected or not acknowledged the importance of these voices from our indigenous community members. But we're treating it like it's a fad. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, wouldn't it be sexy if we had an Indigenous person to open this keynote? And you're just like, Mm -hmm. that is tokenism. It's disgusting. We still don't want to acknowledge the genocide that we have regularly been perpetrating against these communities for now hundreds of years. Like, Mm -hmm. it just speaks so much that people want to pretend like this is a new thing that's really Mm -hmm. hot and exciting. And I feel like, Lee Maracle is an example of people who have been putting in the work to Mm -hmm. get us to this current moment so that we can be glib and self-satisfied about what a great job we're doing acknowledging these important people. And it's like, no, it's gross. And we didn't respect her enough when she was alive. And I sure as hell hope that we're going to do a better job with her successors in the future. Yeah. Well said, Joe. I think that was well said. (laughs) I'm sorry if I sound very annoyed. No, well, you're right to be annoyed. You're right to be more than annoyed. And in many ways, I think that's what this epilogue is intended to remind us of. Yes. That genocide is ongoing, that genocide is more than cultural. It's total. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes people like to use the phrase cultural genocide as a way to somehow soften what has happened and continues to happen. Stop. And it's, yeah, no. And you can see as these people die in this community for want of appropriate medical care, forced into isolation by a society that has treated them violently and disrespectfully. I mean, it should have a tragic ending as much as we enjoy Mm -hmm. Stacey and want to see her succeed. And I think that Markle really walks that balance effectively. And I think it's supposed to jar you. And I'm glad that it does. Absolutely. And that was also very well said. (laughs) I think it's about time that we wrap this up, Joe. We've already said where we're heading next week. We're going to be looking at Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist as our last text of the year. A little bit of a fun holiday break. And uh, after that, we're going to be reinventing the book club a little bit. So stay tuned. Uh, In two weeks' time, we're going to talk a bit about banned books and we're going to think about reshaping the book club in their image a little bit Mm -hmm. so more on that soon in the meantime if you want to get in touch with us you can find us at hkhs pod on the twitters or on the hashtag hkhs pod for longer form stuff like the wonderful emails we got from victoria and tea books and chocolate this week you can find Mm -hmm. us at hkhs pod at gmail.com joe where do they find you i can be reached at b still my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at Brenna C. Gray. I remembered it. That's great with an A. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess we will see you next week. And I hope you're having some kind of peace and calm in this season, whether you celebrate or not. I am going to go and make a coffee and put some Baileys in it, Joe. That is my big plan for the rest uh, of the day. I love that you're on vacation and I really <laughs> need you to just lean into that, Brenna. <laughs> I think everybody needs me to lead into it. Like 10 people at work were like, okay, enjoy your time off. Like, hey, <laughs> like I don't no. want to hear from you. No, but really, <laughs> I don't want to hear from you. Whereas I, on the other hand, will be furiously answering emails for the rest of the day. Oh, Joe, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's fine for now, though. 
So until next time, I will be vacationing and I will see you on the page. <laughs> yes, and I shall be working and I will see you on the screen. <laughs> Bye-bye.